Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. This is what Jeremiah had been prophesying. Of course, the Lord had given him those words to say. And Zedekiah is saying, why are you, I mean, it's treasonous. I mean, why are you saying these things? And so as a result of that, Zedekiah had put Jeremiah into a prison. Let's just set the scene for this chapter. First of all, we're told that it's the 10th year of Zedekiah's reign. We know from history and from the Bible that it was in the 11th year, so a year later in uh, Zedekiah's reign, that Nebuchadnezzar's armies destroyed Jerusalem. But we're told here in this chapter that he had already set a siege, basically surrounded and choking off, you know, nobody in, nobody out, around the city of Jerusalem uh, there in the 10th year. In fact, According to history, they had sieged Jerusalem for approximately about 18 months. So they're into this siege. The Babylonian armies are around Jerusalem at the time of this prophecy. And uh, Jeremiah is in custody, it says, in the court of the prison in the king's house as a result of his prophecies. Um, what we find out and you, we see in this chapter is that Jeremiah, you know, it, it, he was free to walk about within the confines. It's not like he was in a dungeon at this play, point. There was another time when he was thrown in a well. We'll get to that later on. But, you know, and he was in a stocks before. Now he's just basically in the court of the prison in the king's house. So he has some freedom. He's able to walk around within the confines. Uh, we'll find out in this chapter he's able to meet with people. They're able to come to him and, and speak with him. We would probably consider this uh, like maybe medium or, or maybe even, I don't know if they have low security jails. Um, medium. I know they have medium security. So um, it'd almost be like what I would think consider like maybe a house arrest. You know, where they just have a person there. You know, you wonder why Zedekiah did this. And, you know, it quite possibly could have been that he just didn't want Jeremiah out in the public square prophesying this because, you know, it would just, it's bad for public, uh, you know, public perception of the king. It's, I mean, it, you know, he could be fomenting uh, some bad thoughts or, or a riot towards the king. And, and so, you know, maybe, and scriptures doesn't tell us that, but, you know, that could be very, very well be why is that, uh, he has him basically kind of silenced in a sense. He's there, he's not in a dungeon, but he's also not out on the streets speaking with anybody, his prophecies that the Lord gave him. And so verse 6, And Jeremiah said, Jeremiah is speaking here to Zedekiah, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, 
Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So the Lord had told Jeremiah to, uh, to go ahead and, you know, that his cousins, this Hanamel would, would have been his cousin, that Hanamel was going to come and he was going to offer or ask Jeremiah to purchase this field in Anathoth. And uh, so Jeremiah doesn't have to wonder too long, if, is, is that God's will or not? Because sure enough, his cousin comes and says word for word just what the Lord had said. So he goes, huh, that must be the word of the Lord. Wouldn't that be cool if the Lord would tell you that every time and then someone, it just happened like that? It wouldn't be too hard to figure out if God was telling you to do something, right? If it just, but it doesn't always happen that way. But it did in this case for Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah's cousin asks Jeremiah to buy his field, which is in Anathoth. We know from the beginning of the book of Jeremiah that this is the town where, Anna, or where Jeremiah grew up in. That's where he's from. We also know that Anathoth was a few miles from Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, being a cousin to Hanamel, had the right of redemption. Now that, that was a, something that God had set up in the Old Testament for the Israelites. If a person was going bankrupt, they could sell the use of their land to the next of kin, whoever the next, they could purchase it, redeem it for the use of the field. And uh, that was known as the kinsman redeemer. Uh, Goel, I think, is how it's pronounced in Hebrew. Now, if, if you've studied the book of Ruth, you'll realize that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. So there's some uh, interesting things about the kinsman redeemer. But anyways, be that as it may, Jeremiah was the kinsman redeemer for Hanamel. And the reason why uh, Hanamel went to Jeremiah to ask him to buy this field or to redeem this was so that, uh, and the reason why God allowed it was that uh, the property, you know, it wouldn't just transfer into another tribe's, you know, you know, pretty soon one tribe kind of monopolizes all of Israel. The land would stay within the tribal family or the tribal clan, basically. That way the land would stay that way. And so that was what the right of redemption was for. And it was not just, it wasn't like you just buy the field and now you own it forever. It was for the use of the field until the time or the year of the Jubilee. And then at that point, the ownership would go back to the original owner. I think that's kind of a cool thing that God set up for the land of Israel. And so Jeremiah's cousin, Hanamel, comes to the court of the prison, and he asks Jeremiah to purchase his field. And Jeremiah goes, ah, it's, it's the Lord, because he has said it just as the Lord had prophesied. You ever wonder what prophecy is? It's, it's history written in advance. And here God is telling, you know, uh, Jeremiah in advance what history is going to be. You know, I, I find that interesting because, you know, God uh, in throughout a lot of the, uh, the prophets, the books of the prophets says, you know, what other God tells you in advance what's going to happen? And there's so many prophecies that God says, this is how it's going to be. And those things happen exactly as God says. Why did Hanamel need Jeremiah to redeem his field? Well, we're not told why. 
But if you think about it, there's a siege around the land of, or around the city of Jerusalem, and uh, the siege was meant to basically to choke off the supplies to the people there, so that they would get weakened, they would get demoralized, and so that then they could be, uh, uh, you know, conquered basically by the invading armies. And so, uh, it's quite possible that Hanamel needed Jeremiah to redeem his field, probably to get the money, so that he could feed his family. I mean, that's just, I'm just guessing that that's why he did it. Now, think about that from Jeremiah's standpoint. You're, here you are in the court of the jail of the king's house. Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't sound like a very good investment, would it, if someone came up to you and said, you know, hey, you're in jail, but can you buy this piece of land? Anathoth, like I mentioned, is a few miles from Jerusalem. So if you think about these Babylonian armies all surrounding Jerusalem, they probably also occupied Anathoth as well. And uh, if they hadn't, uh, if they weren't currently occupying it, they had probably stripped it bare of anything there because, you know, you have to feed an army and stuff. So, you know, from that standpoint, from an economic standpoint, it probably didn't make sense to Jeremiah. Not only that, you know, Jeremiah has been prophesying all along that they are going to go into captivity. It's going to happen. And so, like, you know, why would you buy a field that's going to be, that belong to the enemy and you're going to be going into another country? What, what sense would that make? But we get to Jeremiah 32, verse 9, and it says, So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money. 17 shekels of silver, and I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah. Not Messiah. <laughs> I'm pronouncing that wrong, I'm sure. In the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. This is what's fascinating to me. Jeremiah obeyed the Lord. It didn't make sense to Jeremiah, but he went ahead and walked in faith and obedience there, and he does this transaction. Verse 13, Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So, you know, we get a little glimpse into... Uh, how real estate was handled in those days. They had two purchase deeds. One would have been the original, and it would be placed in the equivalent of what we would call a safe. In those days, it would have been an earthen jar, sealed and, and stored away. But you know, in our days, we would put an original in a safe or a safety deposit box. Uh, it's basically the same concept. And then there would be a copy of the deed that would be available for public, per, for public viewing so that you could say, yeah, this is my land, you know. Um, so that would be, apparently that's how they, they handle the transactions in those days. Well, this thing that Jeremiah did, which the Lord had told him to do, it was an object lesson for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The lesson was that God would return them to the land 
at a later date, and they would once more buy and sell houses and fields, and you know they would grow crops. They would be back into the land. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 16, Jeremiah, as a prophet of the Lord, was told by God not to take a wife and not to have children. And the reason why was because he was to be an object lesson to the people around him to show that there was a destruction of Jerusalem coming. So life, you just don't go through life like normal. You know, you just, you know, there, there's a destruction coming. You live in light of that. You live in light of, of the coming uh, prophecy, the coming judgment. The lesson was that life as they currently knew it was coming to an end. And so Jeremiah was to live that way as an object lesson. That was in chapter 16. Now here in this chapter, he's told to buy this field from his cousin in order to show the nation of Israel that they would one day come back to the land. That's interesting to me because as God's messenger, how Jeremiah lived his life was to match the prophecies that he was proclaiming. What he said verbally, it had to match what he did in his own life. I like to think of it as Jeremiah had skin in the game. You know, you're saying these things, well, does your life match up with it? I think we have to ask ourselves the same question. Do we live our lives in such a way that people can look at what we profess and they can see how we live and they go, you know what? It it makes sense. I hear what they're saying and I see what they're doing and there's no disconnect there. Unfortunately, sometimes with Christians, there is a disconnect, right? We say, we profess, you know, this, but when you look at our lives, it's like, well, you know what? You, you're, you believe that, but you're not living that way. And so I think we need to ask ourselves that question. Does our life match up to what we profess, or is there a disconnect? Verse 16. Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. You are great in counsel and mighty in work. For your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give them, uh, to give according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day, and in Israel and among other men, and you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do, Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword 
and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There you see it. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witness. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Do you sense Jeremiah's... I mean, there's a dilemma there that Jeremiah is going through. Jeremiah was obedient. The Lord told him, buy this field, redeem this field from your cousin, and it would be an object lesson to the people. And Jeremiah, man, he's, he's faithful, and he, and he walks in obedience, and he does what the Lord tells him. He didn't hesitate to obey, but we come to find out it was hard for him to understand. It was hard. He was having a hard time in view of the siege mounts that were around the city. I mean, he knew and he had been prophesying that the city was going to be taken uh, by the Babylonians. And yet now God tells him to buy this field to represent the fact that they were coming back. And he's looking at this and it's just like, man, I just, it's hard to accept. It's hard to understand. And he's experiencing doubt. He wasn't a hypocrite. He's struggling with doubt. Let me ask you this. Would you consider John the Baptist? You know who John the Baptist was, right? The forerunner of Christ. Would you consider him a hypocrite? Probably not, right? I mean, that guy's message and his life, they pretty much matched up, right? He was preaching repentance and, you know, don't get caught up in worldly things and stuff. And here's this guy in camel hair eating, you know, locusts and wild honey, and he's living out in the desert. I mean, you know, he's not a, one of those prosperity teachers. He's just like, you know, you need to repent and get right with the Lord. And his life pretty much matched up with what he professed. He wasn't a hypocrite. But, you know, John the Baptist, he struggled too. It was a time where he was thrown into prison before he was beheaded. And he sends some of his disciples to Jesus. And he says, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? John experienced doubt. God didn't rebuke him either. Jesus didn't rebuke him. Jesus said, hey, just tell him, you know, the blind see, the lame walk, you know, the sick are healed, the dead are raised. Yeah, I'm the man, Jeremiah. I'm him. Or excuse me, John. You know, when you look at both Jeremiah and John the Baptist, they both had doubts. They were both were great men. The Bible says that there was no greater prophet than John the Baptist. They both had doubts, but they both handled their doubts the right way. They went to the Lord. They went to the Lord in prayer. Verse 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold. Now, one of the things at the Pastors and Leadership Conference, um, one of the speakers there was Don Stewart, and uh, he's a great Bible teacher. He's on the radio with Pastor Chuck Smith. Uh, um, I think they have a daily broadcast. But anyways, um, he was one of the speakers there. And he was kind of doing a little kind of a, a Bible study study kind of thing, like how to study the Bible. And one of the things he said is whenever you come across the word behold in the Bible, it really means pay attention. And uh, it's, you know, kind of he said, here's, here's a tip for you if you're studying the Bible. Whoever or whatever follows the behold is important. And the Holy Spirit's trying to get your attention. Hey, pay attention to this. Behold, you know, check this out. And so here we have, and I know we had one earlier in Jeremiah 32, but here we have a behold, a pay attention. The Holy Spirit is trying to uh, 
draw your and my attention to something important. And so here it says, here the Lord says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. In other words, pay close attention, Jeremiah. I am Jehovah. That word, I am, you know, it would have been enough alone as of an answer for God to say that to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, I am. That means he's the self-existent, the eternal one. He says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Now, if you look back to verse 17 and you compare it, here in verse 17, Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, and there's that word, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And here in verse 27, God responds to Jeremiah and says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? You know, when, I, when I'm studying this, it's like, okay, Jeremiah is proclaiming there's nothing too hard for the Lord. And yet he's struggling with doubt. And the Lord says, hey, Jeremiah, is there anything too hard for me? You know, I thought about that. When I, when I was reading through Jeremiah's prayer there in verse 17 and on, you know, there's all these phrases about how, you know, he, he's delivered them with an outstretched arm, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. His loving kindness is, it goes to thousands, you know. And I start to think, boy, those all sound very familiar to me. They're phrases that you can find in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. God reveals himself to the people of Israel. And I thought, you know, this is probably something, because Jeremiah grew up in a priestly family, the Levitical family. Jeremiah probably was taught that as a child. Probably throughout his life, he'd go to the temple and, and the rabbis, the priests, they would be proclaiming the word of the Lord. And so he heard it over and over again. And so, you know, he knew it. I mean, he knew who God was. But it almost sounds to me like Jeremiah is reciting what he knew from rote about God. Yeah, God, you're faithful, you're good, you're, you're mighty and all this stuff. You know, it's a lot of phraseology, now, there's nothing wrong with Jeremiah's prayer. I'm not knocking his prayer or his heart in this at all. God doesn't rebuke him, so I'm certainly not going to rebuke him. But I think sometimes it's so easy to pray without passion, you know, with no emotion. I'm not speaking about it getting emotional in my praying, but I'm talking about praying with passion, you know, faith and, and desperation and, and with thought to what you're praying. I think sometimes we get that way, don't we? You know, we have all these phrases that we know from being around the Scriptures, you know, reading the Scriptures or going to Sunday school or maybe you grew up in a Christian home or coming to this church. You know, we know greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. We, we proclaim that because we know it, right? We proclaim that God is in control. How many times do you say that? You know, yeah, this thing's going, but God's in control, which He is, by the way. <laughs> and we say God is faithful. And we say God is good. But sometimes I think it's so easy for us to just say those things. And God's looking at Jeremiah's heart. He says, Jeremiah, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And I think what the Lord is saying, Jeremiah, what do you think? 
Is there anything too hard for me? I think he's challenging Jeremiah's heart here. Jeremiah's like, you know, Lord God, you are mighty. You are awesome. You're all powerful. But look at the siege mounts, Lord. They're big. That army's massed around the city. You know, we have a a picture of who God is. And, you know, God's a a great God and there is no God above. God is, you know, Lord of Lords and God of God, you know. But then we have this problem. And that problem sometimes can seem so big that it obscures our view of who God is. You and I, we need a biblical view of God. How do you get a biblical view of God? Well, it starts by studying the whole counsel of God, by reading the Word. That starts there. You know, the Old Testament and the New Testament, cover to cover, verse by verse. You know, if you had never read the Old Testament, you wouldn't have come across this phrase, is there anything too difficult for me? You know, in Genesis 18, verse 14, there's the same phrase there. God asks Abraham when he had told Sarah and Abraham, they were, they were well advanced into old age, and God says, I'm going to give you a son. And, and, and Sarah, she's hearing it. She's not in the presence. She's behind the tent, and she's kind of laughing to herself like, yeah, right, I'm an old lady. I'm barren. And the Lord says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? So if you hadn't read your scriptures, you would never know that that happened. You would never look at that story and go, oh, wow, yeah. And God did come through, and he did provide them a child. Miraculous how Isaac was born. Let me ask you this. How powerful is your God? How powerful is your God? You know, maybe you're a Christian and you have a belief that, you know, Jesus died and rose again from the dead, but, you know, you struggle with some of the, some of the miracles. It's like, I, just, I don't know how he could have done that. I, I don't know how, you know, Jonah could have been swallowed by a fish. You know, was it a whale, a big fish? I mean, and, and, and for three days and three nights, I mean, that just, you know, I wonder if that's just a story. How powerful is your God? You know, the first verse of the Bible determines your view of the power of God. What's the first verse? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Man, just think about that. God created everything. The Bible says that there's nothing that's been created that he didn't create. Everything has been created. How powerful is your God? You know, and, and, and I'm assuming the majority of you, and I don't know everybody's hearts here, but I'm assuming quite a few of you, have a relationship, at least I hope all of you have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning. I would probably venture to say for each one of you here this morning, it probably isn't so much an intellectual issue. I'm not, I'm not telling you something new or something that, no, I didn't want you know, that you don't believe. I think you believe the scriptures. But I think the problem is, you know, we have this intellectual belief and this intellectual understanding. But I think for us, many of us, it's it's an experiential issue. We haven't experienced the power of God. You know, we we can say it all we want, but, but, you know, when it comes down to it, do we really, really, really believe that God's able and that he's all-powerful? 
I think sometimes God lets us get to the point of desperation in order to reveal to you and I His power and His glory. I know you all have stories, and some of you may have heard some of these stories before. You know, my mom, she, I grew up in, I was born in Canada, and uh, I'm the youngest of four children. And uh, my parents, my dad was a house painter back there in Canada, and, and uh, they, uh, it was, they had immigrated from Holland. So they, they uh, you know, post-war, they didn't have money. You know, Europe was pretty much devastated. And uh, they came to uh, Canada to start a new life, and uh, they were poor. I didn't get much sleep last night, so if I start crying, it's not because I'm getting emotional. I'm tired. <laughs> but anyways, they were poor, uh, you know, for the most part, and uh, struggling to put food on the table. And some of you know exactly what that's like. And uh, there was a time my dad was gone. It was in the middle of winter. I don't even know if I was born yet. Um, I've heard the story, but I don't know. Um, I may have just been, I, I'm assuming I was a baby at that time. My mom, at one point, she realized that she didn't have any milk to feed the kids. And uh, so um, she got on her knees and started praying. And uh, it was a prayer of desperation. I shouldn't be getting emotional, but it was a prayer of desperation. And uh, just, Lord, we don't have any milk. And she said, you know, a little while later, she's looking out her window, and there was snow. It was in the middle of winter in Edmonton, where I, where I was born, and the snow banks were so tall, you could basically just see the heads of people walking down the sidewalk, and that's how tall it was. And she said she saw some guy, and, and he looked like he was carrying something, and he ducked down right in front of the house in, on the sidewalk and, and, and then stood back up and walked away. And she thought, well, it looked like he put something down there. And so she waited for a while to see, well, maybe he's going to come back and pick up whatever he set down there. And she didn't know. So then she sent my brother, an older brother of mine, to go out and find out what was out there. He went out there, and there was a bag with milk. She, to this day, she says it was an angel. <clears throat> I remember, and I know, I know many of you know this story, but as a, as a teen... I don't know why, but I started getting these dizzy spells, and uh, they get to the point where I would literally, it was like vertigo. I mean, I was just like, I'd have to lay my head down on the ground. It was like I was drunk. I mean, I, I hadn't been drunk at the time, so I didn't, too young for that, but that's uh, what it felt like, you know. I mean, you couldn't stop the spinning. I'd, I'd throw up. I was just sick and everything, and, and uh, it happened a couple times in high school, and uh, when it happened in high school and went to a doctor, they were like, you know, uh, I had a driver's license then. They're like, you can't drive. We have to run you through all these tests and stuff because if you if this happens when you're driving down the road, I mean, you could either kill get killed yourself or you could kill someone else. And so I had to go to go through all these tests to find out what was causing it. They couldn't figure out what it was. Um, I went to a neurologist. I mean, they did all kinds of stuff, and they couldn't figure out what it was. And uh, But they kept coming off and on. And, and then I got into the military, and I was... Uh, uh, up in Duluth, actually. And uh, I could always tell when it was coming on because I'd get this kind of like this fuzzy feeling in my brain and then all of a sudden, blah, just, that was it. And, and uh, I remember sitting there one time. I was at lunchtime and I was by myself. Most of the other people had gone. I was just sitting at our, our little shop in, on the base there. And uh, I could feel it coming on. 
And I'm like, oh, I don't want to go through this again. And I remember just praying and saying, Lord, please heal me. And it started to happen, and boom, as soon as I said that, it went away. And it's, that's, what, 30 years ago or so? It's never come back since. You know, and it was just, it was just Lord, help me. Boom, it was gone. Teresa and I, I uh, was at Mayo Clinic last week, and they kept asking me, how many years have you been married? And I kept saying, 27. Well, we've been married actually 31 years, so I was... Uh, <laughs> Teresa was with me in one of the office things, and they're like, how long have you been married? I'm like, 27. She goes, 27? Because it's been 31. I'm like, oops. So anyways, uh, our... You know, we had some friends, because we, we lived in California for a while, and some of our friends, in fact, I'd probably say all of our friends were a little bit better off financially than we were uh, as a young couple. And, you know, the 10th anniversary come up, and the 15th anniversary, and the 20th. And these friends of ours always say, hey, let's, let's do something together for our anniversary. Let, let's go to Hawaii or go on a cruise. And we're like, yeah. And then when it came to it, we never had the money to do it. They'd go on, their, they'd go on to Hawaii or go on their cruise, but we couldn't do it. And so every time, you know, I'd take Teresa out to lunch or dinner or something, you know, McDonald's is always good, but no, it wasn't that bad. But, but you know, we never had an, money to do something kind of, to me, that would be extravagant to go on a, on a cruise or go to Hawaii or something like that. And uh, anyway, so our, our 25th anniversary was rolling around, coming up. And, uh, you know, it was just like the, the feeling of, you know, we don't have to do anything. I mean, we love each other. It's not about going somewhere, doing something. But man, just really, it would have been nice to have done it just once, you know. And uh, I remember both Teresa and I just praying and saying, Lord, we just don't have the money. And it was kind of weird. I was balancing our checkbook, and I kept, for about the month or two months before, I kept going, it seems like there's more money in the checkbook than is making, I mean, it's just something's not copacetic, you know. And so I went back. And I started doing a, you know, checking our, balancing our checkbook and reconciling it with banks. I went back a year, and I couldn't figure it out. But there was this money in there. I have no idea where it came from. Uh, you might say, well, you probably absent-minded and forgot. It's possible. I don't know where it came from, but we had enough money to go on a vacation for our 25th anniversary. And, you know, it, again, it's not about money. A um, couple more stories here. My dad passed away in 2010. Teresa was out there for about a month with my dad while he was, uh, you know, uh, when his days were drawing short. And I, I was out there for a while, and I had to come back here for work. And then, and then he went ahead and passed away. And so had to go back. And uh, <clears throat> so, um, you know, you guys have blessed us as a family many times. And... Uh, Anyways, again, I'm, I don't know why I'm getting emotional about it, but uh, my dad's with the Lord, so I'm, I'm not, it's not about that at all. But uh, so, you know, getting ready to go to this, fly back to California to this funeral, and, and some of you came up to me and, and um, gave us some money, and it was a blessing. Well, that, I, was, I think I was going to leave on a, on a Monday morning, and uh, Sunday, getting ready to go, or Saturday night, I think it was, I was going into my laundry room to get some, probably wash some clothes or something, and I see water trickling out of the water heater. And I'm like, oh, great. 
Because I'm thinking, here, I'm going to California. I'm going to leave the house, and i got this little seepage coming under the water heater. And usually it's a sign, you know, if there's seepage, I mean, how long is it going to be before there's a full-blown water leak? And, you know, water heater, if it starts running, it's going to be a big deal, a lot of flooding going on and stuff. So I'm like, great, i got to replace the water heater. And uh, it wasn't that we were flat broke or anything, but uh, it was a strain for us. Teresa was gone. She had no clue what was, this was going on. And so I'm like, okay, well, i, I got to replace it before I go. So I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll just put it on a charge card, I guess, and deal with it when I get back. And so uh, I went to uh, Home Depot and bought this water heater. And uh, my son, uh, one of my sons was going to help me install it. And, uh, you know, there was a couple of you came to the house and, and uh, just told me, you know, I feel the Lord's laid on my heart to give you some money. And so you gave us money. And I kid you not, and Chad's my witness, the money that you guys gave me was exactly to the dollar enough to pay for that water heater. You know, it's amazing what God does. Teresa, she hurt her arm. I'm not going to keep going, but here a couple more. Uh, <laughs> Teresa heard her, heard her arm at work-related injury. So because it happened at work, you know, it's a workman's comp issue. And so, uh, you know, we've gained a new appreciation for that whole deal because, uh, you know, right away they think that you're, you're trying to milk the system. I mean, that's, it's like it's set up that way. And so, um, so she's going through this thing at Olmstead and uh, a clinic in town. I shouldn't say Olmstead. But uh, anyways, they... Uh, they, the, you know, she knew that it was something in her forearm or wrist or whatever. But they first thing they did was they gave her like this thumb splint like thing, you know, put this on and you know, you know, come back later if it's still bugging you. And she knew that the pain was here, but you know, okay, so she, now she's got this little thumb thing, and uh, you know, of course it wasn't healing it or wasn't taking care of it. So she'd go back again, and they're like, oh, well, then they, they tried, and they were working around all these different things. And this went on for an entire year. What had happened was her tendon had separated from the bone. It was, it could have been, if it had been diagnosed correctly, it could have been corrected very simply, just a reattachment to the bone. And those of you that are medical, you know what I'm, probably you know more about it than I do. Well, anyways, this stuff went on for a year, and Teresa was so frustrated. At one point, she cried. She was praying, and she said, Lord... Have the doctor just say, Mrs. Reipster, there's nothing more I can do for you. I'm going to refer you to Mayo Clinic. She went into the doctor's office. The doctor, kid you not, said, Mrs. Reipstra, there's nothing more we can do for you. We have to send you to Mayo Clinic. And uh, it was almost like that Star Wars, you know, where they're, they're, the mind melt, you know, let us pass. Well, go ahead and pass, you know. Word for word, what her prayer was. And she went to the uh, to Mayo Clinic, and they found out that it was separated. And because, because it had been a year, they did a major reconstructive surgery of her wrist and everything. But, you know, praise God, it got corrected. Um, one more. You know, it's fascinating. Teresa, I, one day, you know... I used to drink, you know, beer. It wasn't a, to me, I, as a Christian, I, I didn't feel like it violated, you know, I felt like I had the liberty to drink beer and stuff. And so, um, you know, I, I would have a drink now and then. And, and uh, anyways, 
a while back, I remember this has been quite a while now, but I remember actually probably a decade or more at least. But I remember uh, just really starting to feel, you know, the Lord is just telling me, you know, you need to stop. You really need to stop. And so I remember coming up to Teresa and I said, honey, I said, I really feel like the Lord's told me to stop drinking. <laughs> she got this big smile on her face and she goes, I've been praying that exact thing for years. She's been praying and she never, she never judged me. She never, you know, what, you know, you bad husband of mine. She never rebuked me. Um, she never preached at me. She just prayed. And, uh, God answered that prayer. And, uh, you know, I, I bring up all these things. Oh, one more thing about that. You know, none of these things that I've mentioned to you, and I, I don't mean to knock anyone's theology, but none of these involved claiming anything by faith. I didn't have to name it and claim it. The only thing that it was usually, it was a prayer of desperation. Sometimes there were tears. The water heater thing, it was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but i got to do something. It wasn't even a prayer of faith. Well, I know God's going to provide. It wasn't that at all. God provided. But so many of those times, it was just a prayer of desperation. Lord, help. And he came, came through in all those times. And, you know, I'm sure we could probably pull some of you guys, and I'm sure there'd be some probably much better stories than what I've just shared. But, you know, I think sometimes we get so comfortable in our praying. You know, Lord, please do this. But there's no desperation. There's no, there's no like, Lord, please do this. And God wants to answer your prayers and my prayers. But he wants us to pray in faith. And I'm not talking about, again, I'm not talking about naming it and claiming it. But let me ask you this again. Is there anything too hard for God? You know, maybe you have an impossible situation involving a person. Because, you know, we can talk about money and inanimate things and stuff, and it's not about money at all. Maybe you're involved with a situation that's impossible, and it's a person. And it's like, God, this person, they just they won't change. It's, it's impossible. I love what God says to Jeremiah. I'm the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult? You don't think God can change someone's heart? Yes, he can. He created them. Well, as you and I get into a more intimate time with the Lord, Jeremiah here is obviously in an intimate time with the Lord. God comforts him. Not only does God comfort him, but God gives him a deeper revelation of what's going to happen. He gets more information. And I think that's so important. That's so key for you and I to get into that place of desperation, that place of passion in our prayers. God shows up when we're that, when we're that heart. When we have that heart attitude. God shows up. And then he starts revealing, starts speaking to your heart. And here he speaks to Jeremiah, verse 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to the city and burn it, whose houses, uh, with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. 
you know, God's kind of giving a little bit of a perspective here. You know, yeah, this is the land of milk and honey, but I'm going to destroy those homes where they've been on their roofs. They've been offering sacrifices to Baal. There's idolatry in the homes. They provoke me to anger, God's basically saying. Continuing, because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. That blew me away when I read that. Think about, listen to how God is describing them. God says, the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. Do you know what that sounds like? Don't have to turn there. If you're taking notes, you can, though. But Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God describes the wicked world before the flood. And you know what he says? Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that the every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's how God described the world that he destroyed with a flood. And those were pagan, wicked idolaters. And now it's his own people who know better, who are his people, and they're acting just like the wicked. It blew me away when I read that. The children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that he built it, even to this day. So I will remove it from before my face because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they have turned to me the back and not the face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction." I don't know if you understand that picture that God is saying. They've turned to me the back. What does that look like? Maybe you've experienced it with a disobedient child or hopefully not with a spouse, but maybe you've experienced it in your life. You start talking to someone and they go like this. (laughs) They don't want to hear it. They don't even want to see your face. God says, that's how you guys are treating me. How, you know, do you think that's possible that we could ever do that? Oh, no, no, no. I, I would never do that, right? What do you think when the Holy Spirit starts speaking to your heart and saying, repent of this sin, or you need to do this? And we go, I don't hear you. You know, I've done that. I, I remember distinctly the Lord telling me over and over, don't do that, don't do that, do that. And you know what? I willfully turned around and said, Look, I'm not going to, I, I want to do this. And I'll go ahead and do it. In sin. Yeah, we do. We can do that, and we do do that. Continuing here. But they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. The Canaanites that were in the land performed human sacrifice, burning their babies, their children, alive in the fire to appease the god of Molech. God's people 
adopted that practice there. They had been doing it. God's people were no better than the inhabitants of the world prior to the flood, and they were no better than the Canaanites whom God destroyed from the land before them. God here is making it abundantly clear that his people deserve judgment. There's no, there's, you don't have to, there's no, you know, they're nice people. No, God says, no, they, they're no better than anybody else. They are just as wicked. One of the pastors, Bill Gallatin, that was at the conference made this comment, and it just fits so well. He says, God wraps his judgment with grace. Because here God's judging the people, but he always wraps his judgment with grace. You, you know, today, wasn't today a beautiful day? I mean, you look out and you have the beautiful sky, beautiful sunset. Well, we don't have a sunset yet, but we will, hopefully, Lord willing. Um, but, you know, we look out, we go out and maybe go camping and you go out and see some beautiful, you know, mountains and all that stuff. And we go, man, God's creation is so beautiful. But do you understand that what you are saying is beautiful is a result of the fall? It's a result of God's judgment on this world because the world that you and I are looking at and go, oh, it's so beautiful. That's not the world that existed before the fall. This is after. This is after the flood. And yet, in God's judgment, we go, God, this creation is so beautiful because God wraps his judgment with grace. And God is doing that here for the children of Israel. They deserve God's punishment. They deserve destruction. They are no better than anybody else. But listen to God's words of grace. Verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, again, there's behold again. I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. Did they deserve to be brought back into the land? No, they didn't deserve it. It's just God's grace here. You know, we live in the most incredible time. You know, it's a scary time when you look at how our freedoms are being eroded. We look at the, the apostasy that is starting to creep into the church. We look, at, we look at how our government seems to be selling us out to the United Nations. I mean, there's so many things that we can get. That's, it's, we're entering into a dark time. We are. But we're also entering into a time of great light because Jesus is coming back soon. And we are alive. We're the generation that's seeing prophecies being fulfilled. 1967 was when Jerusalem became, or the Temple Mound was in Israel's hands. You know, there's a prophecy, the, the last days, there's going to be a third temple built. Well, how can you have a third temple built? First of all, there's no Israel. Well, there's an Israel now since 1948. Well, how can, how can a temple be built when, when uh, Transjordan owns the Temple Mound? Well, 1967, that was solved. Now, now Israel isn't, although they've kind of, kind of, I don't know how they did that, but they kind of handed off the, the, uh, the control to the, uh, to the Jordanians. They kind of semi have control, but Israel has control of the Temple Mound. It's possible now. You, you might go, well, I don't know how, that, how the Muslims would allow you know, the nations. Well, I think if we stick around a little while, 
providing the Lord doesn't take us before then, um, we might see some pretty fascinating things coming up here in the very near future. They're back in the land. It's a miracle. God's words, God's promises do not fail. Verse 38, They shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that, will, and that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. You know, Jerusalem, or excuse me, the Jewish people as a whole are in disbelief, right? They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Right now, some of this has not been fulfilled, but I think we're on the cusp of it being fulfilled in its entirety. It's coming very soon. Verse 41, Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. You know, we are told to love the Lord our God with, the Lord our God with all our heart and with our soul. God says, I'm loving my people with all my heart and with all my soul. And I can tell you today that God loves you with all of his heart and with all of his soul. He's sold out for you. I mean, so much so that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. And none of us deserved it. Verse 42, For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them, and the fields which bought... Uh, excuse me, and fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland and in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. What a beautiful word of grace to, the, to, to Jeremiah to comfort him and, and to God's people. Yeah, you're going into captivity, but I'm going to restore you into this land. You know, I think of how, you know, and their going into captivity was the result of their sin. They deserved everything that they are getting. And you know, when you and I sin against God and we bear the consequences of sin, that sometimes those consequences, they can ruin you know, they, they ruins things. They destroy. It's so destructive. Our lives can be so messed up, but God, by His grace, can restore what the enemy has taken from you, what you've allowed the enemy to take from you. God, in His grace, can restore it if you'll just turn back to Him, if you'll just look to Him and cry out to Him. God can, and He wants to restore. Verse 16 of uh, Luke chapter 18 Jesus said this, well, it says, But Jesus called them to him. There's a bunch of children around him. And he said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And I want to close with this because, you know, you think about this. Talking about prayer of desperation and just, oh, help me. You know, think of how little children are. Daddy, mommy, and they hold up their hands, help me, or you know, they have that childlike faith and they just they just come to you. 
in passion. They don't say, I believe you're going to come over here, Daddy, and help me. No, they just cry out, Dad, help me, or Mom, help me. And as you as a loving parent, man, you're, you're there. You're right there to meet whatever that need is. That's how the Lord God wants you to go to Him, to cry out to Him, Father, Abba. And if you do that, I mean, God is faithful to His Word. He has been faithful. He'll continue to be faithful. God loves you this morning, and He has a plan and a purpose for your life. But He wants you to turn to Him in faith. And I hope this encourages you in your prayer life. I mean, this Thursday night, we have that National Day of Prayer. We'll have a prayer meeting here at the church. Uh, I am looking forward to praying passionately. Again, not emotional. We're not gonna be, we have no chandeliers to swing from anyways, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just passionately seeking the Lord in, in faith like children, crying out to Him. That's one thing, you know, through this uh, pastor's conference, that's one of the things, and the Lord's been speaking to me about that even before that, but boy, I tell you, the messages I heard and the things are just, He's just confirming it in me that that's where He wants me to be personally. Because I tell you what, I, I you know, I, I know Scripture. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church most of my life, and my parents read the Bible at home. So, I mean, I know a lot of stories, and I know, you know, I know about God. But God says, well, yeah, you knew those things intellectually, but have you experienced it? Do you really believe it? Do you really trust me? And that's where God's taken me. Hopefully, he's taken you to the same place. And uh, I just encourage you to seek the Lord and, and see if that is what he wants for you. Um, because I think as we draw closer to these last days, I think, uh, not that prayer is ever not important, but I think it's going to be that much more important for us to be a praying church, seeking God on our knees. And so I hope you're encouraged this morning. Would you stand up and let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. Lord God, we confess to you, Father, so often we just let our prayers just roll off the tip of our tongue without even thinking. Lord, we say all the Christian buzzwords that we know that Christians are supposed to say in prayer. But Lord, if we were honest with each other and with you, we would admit that so many times, Lord, it's just, we're, it's just words. We don't really believe it. We don't really put our trust in them. Father, we confess that to you this morning and ask that you would forgive us. Father, I pray that as we are drawing close to the end of the age, Father, that we would be a praying church, a praying people, a people who seek your face just as little children. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us and we don't deserve it. Lord, we don't deserve to have our prayers answered, but Lord, you want to meet with us. And Father, may we take advantage of that. So we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We ask your blessing. I ask your blessing upon each and every person here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.